children, Miss Kristen is back there, and she is waiting for you. So if you are a child and you want to head back there with her, you may do that now. And hope that uh, everyone has had a good week. What a beautiful uh, last couple of days, huh? It's been remarkable. And uh, we had a good week here at ZPC. On uh, Wednesday night, there was a group of uh, ZPC men who went down to Speedway to do some go-karting and you may have heard rumors about a pastor who was running people into walls, and I just want you to know, that was Scott. Um, amen? No? All right. Don't try to pass me, and you won't get run into the wall. All right? That's the lesson to be learned there. All right. So, um, but it has been a good week, and um, so today we're continuing in our uh, series of of asking um, if we believe that God loves us uh, and that God has bestowed his grace upon us, uh, then how do we respond? And we remember, of course, that we respond not in order to gain God's love or God's, God's grace, but out of a response to that. And so uh, we're going to look today at Acts 10, and I kind of wrestled with whether or not how much of this I should do, and then yesterday I finally said, okay, we're just going to read the whole chapter. It is kind of lengthy, um, but I figured that if this is the, the, um, the greatest sin that I commit today, then it will have been a good day. So I encourage you uh, to keep your attention as we uh, read through um, Acts 10. And Luke writes, In Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. And he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who was called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. And when the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, 
Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him, and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I am only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this very hour at three o'clock I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who was called Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore, I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And that message spread throughout Judea, beginning in the Galilee and after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter said, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, we do give you praise for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this passage that tells of your works, and we pray, God, that you would speak to us and through us. The words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
So one of the things that I am struggling with when it comes to this particular sermon series is trying to figure out how to preach something uh, in a reasonable amount of time. I know that some of you think that I always wrestle with that, but usually I don't care. But I'm really wrestling with it this time because of the fact that these subjects are so big, right? Worship or scripture. I mean, you could go on and on for days, weeks, months about these subjects. And prayer, which is what we're talking about today, is very much the same thing. I mean, we could go over lots of different kinds of prayer, prayers of confession, prayers of lament, prayers of, uh, of intercession, prayers of praise, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession, intercessory prayers, prayers of petition, uh, which is the one that most of us is, are probably familiar with when we are asking God for something, right? Something, a uh, provision or security or health for us or for loved ones or for the world. We could go on and on about that. But I decided this week, rather than talking about each of those things, what we would really do is look at Acts 10 and see what happens when people take seriously the idea of prayer. And so, uh, here's what I want us to do. I want us, first of all, to just kind of look generally at what was happening in Acts 10. And what we see is that the Spirit of God is alive and at work in the young church. We see that the Spirit of God is working and refreshing in new ways. We see the fact that all of a sudden the Spirit of God is giving people new visions. That the Spirit of God is crossing over racial and ethnic barriers. That the Spirit of God is beginning to cultivate new relationships with one another. We, we see with Cornelius, this is a Gentile who was uh, very popular and had been doing very well for himself, both in the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And we see that now, finally, his prayers are beginning to be answered. Answered. We, we see with Peter, someone who's followed Jesus for years now, that all of a sudden something new is happening and Peter's beginning to discover that the Spirit is working in vibrant ways beyond what he ever could have imagined. And as we get towards the end of the 10th chapter, we, we, we begin to see that there, all of a sudden, God is doing new things. I love this part of it. I found it somewhat amusing that, 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 as, uh, that the Spirit of God comes in the middle of Peter's sermon. In other words, it's not just parishioners that get tired of their preachers going on and on. It's actually the Spirit of God himself at times that gets impatient, right? He, he said, okay, Peter, you've made your point, and now I'm tired of waiting. And so all of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes upon those who have gathered, and they're getting baptized. And in the 11th chapter, I could have gone on and started reading in the 11th chapter. How's that? Anyone no, okay, all right, well, we won't do that, um, but you can read on your own, and what happens in the 11th chapter is that people from the surrounding towns are beginning to hear what God is doing, and they begin to come to receive the grace and the love of Jesus. They become baptized. Again, all of these things are happening in the early church, and it's easy for us, I think, at times to wonder, where is the Spirit of God? Where is this kind of exciting, renewing Spirit of God in our churches, or where is it even in our personal lives that sometimes we wrestle with wondering where God is at work in our lives, and here we see it happening in the early church, and we can wonder whether or not or we can either get excited about that and it can inspire us, or if we're honest, it can kind of depress us one way or the other. And the question 
that is begged by this particular passage is this. Why was the Spirit of God so alive in that early church? And were the people doing anything to help the Spirit be so alive? Now, first of all, let's be clear. You cannot manufacture the Holy Spirit. I have seen people try to manufacture the Holy Spirit. You simply cannot do it. It never ends well. But... As we talked about several, or a couple of years ago now, when we talked about spiritual disciplines, there are things, it seems to me, that we can do that put ourselves in a position for the Spirit of God to be at work and alive. Uh, the, the image that I've borrowed and that I use is it's a bit like if you're standing on the side of a lake and you want to get across And and probably there's not going to be a wind that's going to be big enough to carry you over just on your own. But you can build a sailboat so that when the wind comes, then you are able to go from one side of the lake to the other. And so the question is, what are those things that we can do that kind of slowly help us to build a sailboat so that when the Spirit comes, it can blow through us and help us to further the mission of God? What were the people doing to build the sailboat in the early church? Well, there's several things. A few of them I just want to go over quickly because they're things that we talk about with some regularity here from other passages. One is they were willing to put themselves at risk. The second is that they were uncertain of how exactly it was all going to end up. And thirdly, at some point, one of them wondered why in the world they were there in the first place. Right? Think about the risk. Peter says in his sermon, or even before he preaches, he says, you know it is unlawful for me to be here. In other words, he knows very clearly that what he is doing is incredibly risky, and yet he's willing to be there nonetheless. The second thing, of course, is that Peter doesn't know exactly what is going to happen. Peter, we're told explicitly, was questioning what the vision was really about. And I think that that's actually really important for a church full of type A people. You see, we want to know exactly where we are going to end up, and we want to know the 47.3 steps that are going to help us to get there, or we don't even want to take step one. And so we want to figure everything out. But look at what happens with Peter. Peter doesn't know. He gets some kind of vision. He's not entirely sure what it's about. He signs these three guys who want to take him someplace. So he begins to walk there. He has no idea. He doesn't know the whole vision. He doesn't have any idea what's going to happen. And I wonder at times if we don't sense the Spirit and if the Spirit isn't alive in us nearly as much as it could be because we don't want to take a first step until we have the whole plan figured out. And so maybe it's a lesson for some of us of what it looks like to begin to take a first step even if you don't know where the second step is going to lead you. And thirdly, of course, we see the fact that Peter is wondering why he is there, right? Peter asks them, why have you sent for me? What am I doing here? Which is eerily reminiscent of a sermon that we talked about six or seven weeks ago now at the beginning of the year where we talked about the critical nature of putting ourselves in vulnerable situations and wondering why we are here. 
that if you haven't in the last year put yourself in a position for God where you have felt vulnerable and you have said, oh, why am I here? Then there's a good chance that you may not be following the Spirit as much as the Spirit would like you to. Right? One of the things we talked about was the great banquet, right? At the great banquet, if you were to go to the great banquet, which starts for men in a week and a half, and then for women in three and a half weeks, if, right, if you do that, right, it's a, it'll be a vulnerable feeling. And more than likely, at some point while you're there, you are going to ask yourself, why am I here? Why did I let Jerry talk me into coming to this thing, Right? That, that, and one of the cool things has been over the last several weeks to be able to hear from some of you who have tried to put yourselves in those vulnerable situations. Remember, if you are always in control, who is not in control? God, right? And so we have to be willing to put ourselves in situations where we are at times uncomfortable and vulnerable and where we wish at times that we weren't there because oftentimes that's exactly where God wants you to be. But since we're talking about prayer, we should probably also point out that a part of the reason it seems to me why it is that the Spirit of God was able to be so alive in the early church is because they were a people of prayer. We see this with Cornelius. He is described as a generous man and as a man who was always, who was constantly praying, right? We see it, of course, with Peter, right? That Peter is, um, goes up, um, as soon as he gets to the place, he goes up to the roof in order to... Now look, I know that this bird that keeps hitting this window is interesting. <laughs> well, I will keep us here until 2 o'clock if I can't get someone to answer my question. I'm just kidding. You can leave whenever you want to. Thank you. Yeah, Claude's very nervous. Pray. That's right. Well done, Claude. I'm not going to say anything else about that bird. Okay. Because Peter was willing to... There you go. Because he was willing to pray, right? He was praying. Cornelius was praying. They were praying, right? All of you guys are trying to not look, and I see you. I see you. Right? And I don't think that they necessarily had any idea what was going to happen to them, right? I mean, I think that they sat there, were told that Cornelius was actually afraid, and then we're also told that, that Peter, again, as we've already mentioned, was, was somewhat flummoxed by it. He didn't know. He didn't know exactly what this meant, so they were nervous. But both of them, both of them intentionally created space so that they might be interrupted by God. And I think a lot of times when it comes to prayer, we think about prayer as a petition or confession or praise or gratitude, and we don't think about the fact that a part of prayer, a key part of prayer, is putting ourselves in a position in order that God can interrupt us. And that means that at times we need to sit still before God. Now, God certainly can work in the midst of the noise and the busyness of our lives, but what if we are missing a lot of things that God is wanting to tell us because things around us are too noisy? One of my favorite passages is in 1 Kings 19. You may be familiar with it. Elijah is a prophet of God, and he's growing very weary 
as many of the prophets did, and he wants to give up. And God realizes that he needs to kind of show himself to Elijah, to show that he's still alive and at work. And so he tells Elijah to go up on a mountain and that he is going to present himself to him. So Elijah goes up on the mountain and he goes into a cave. And this is what First Kings says. He says, now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And if you continue to read on, you will read that it is only then that the Lord begins to speak to Elijah. Can the Lord speak in the earthquake, in the fire, in the wind? Absolutely. But how often does the Lord not also speak in the silence But we are simply not listening. So why is it that we struggle with being still before the Lord? Why is it that we struggle so often with silence? Well, there's probably lots of reasons. One of them, something that we touch on here quite a bit, is Because people are so busy, right? We've got our calendar picked out. What do we do all the time? We complain about how busy we are as we are putting something else in the calendar, right? And so that's what we do. And so we keep saying, oh, my goodness, we're so busy. But there's something about it that we like. Otherwise, guess what? We'd stop doing it, right? Friday, because it was so nice, Friday evening, we uh, decided to go to Bub's. I mean, that's not why we decided, because... I mean, why would you not go to Bub's at every opportunity that you had? And so we decided, though, because it was nice, that rather than driving there, that we would walk there. It's only about a mile or so for us. Uh, And so we we did as a family. We began to to trek there. And, and of course, this is what always happens whenever you decide to drive or to walk through your neighborhood rather than driving through your neighborhood, which is that you see things that you would not otherwise see. And so as we walked through, we saw an abandoned building, and we got to talk about, I wonder what used to be there. We saw an uneven sidewalk that one of the girls tripped on. That was exciting. Um, um, we, uh, we got to hear birds that were chirping. We got to see all of these things that if we had been driving at 35 miles an hour, because we are law-abiding citizens, if we had been driving there, and if we'd been driving there with the windows up and the radio on, we would never have seen and never heard. Now, those things are always there, but we simply don't see them usually because we're in too big of a hurry. And the question is, what might be there right now? What might God be saying to you right now? What might God be showing to you right now? But we are too busy to actually hear or see or experience Him. We're too busy. There's another thing, it seems to me, another reason why we struggle at times with stopping and listening and hearing is because of the fact that many of us, perhaps most of us, have things that if we were quiet, we would have to think about. 
There are a lot of things, it seems to me, in our lives that we typically would prefer to be distracted and to not have to think about. A while back, I talked about how I rode one time with my sister uh, in Idaho. And, uh, my nephew, who at the time was just a few years old, and we, 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 as we were driving along in the van, she would occasionally point to stuff. And she'd say, oh, look at that pretty house over there. And I'd look over, and it really, really wasn't that pretty. And, um, and, and so we'd say, well, that's, yeah, that's really great, sis. And then we'd go a little bit further. She'd say, oh, look at that. Look at that cool car over there. And we'd look over, and it wasn't that cool of a car. And, and, and so I thought, wow, my sister's kind of lame. And so anyway, so we were continuing on. And she just kept pointing to things, and I was like, well, what's going on? Until finally, right, finally I, I decided to look the opposite direction. And every time that she would point over here, over here, there was a playground. And every time she'd point over here, over there, there was a playground. And so what my sister was doing was she was trying to keep all of us from feeling the burden of my nephew seeing the playground and beginning to scream and cry until we stopped. And I wonder to myself, how often do we get excited about distractions because it keeps us from having to reflect upon the burdens that we don't want to face? How often would we prefer to be distracted by what's going on over here rather than having to face our loneliness or our anxieties or our fears or our broken relationships or our dreams that have been shattered? And so I wonder how often is it that, that in so doing, do we not only keep from having to face the real world around us, but do we also not keep at bay the Spirit of God who perhaps, if we were silent, might have something to say to us, even in the midst of our burdens? We struggle, it seems to me, with being silent because of our busyness, and because of our fears of our burdens and facing them. But there's one other thing, it seems to me, that we probably don't talk about very much. And it seems in some ways very pedestrian. And yet, it may just be something that many of us struggle with. Which is that we don't stay silent in the presence of God because it's boring. We, we don't like being boring, and I have a feeling there may be some of us here who have tried before to be still before God, and they've done it for a few minutes, and they've gotten incredibly bored. And they've said, well, I'm, I shouldn't be bored about this, and so they've just kind of given up. Or there are others of us for whom even the thought of just being still is so kind of against what they, what they, uh, who they are because they know that sure enough, if they do that, all of a sudden they are going to be bored. And the reality, of course, is that most of us love to be distracted because we hate being bored. It may concern you that your pastor is going to say this, but I will say it anyways. At times when I pray, I really get bored. I mean, let me be clear. I love praying for you. 
I love coming alongside of you and praying. I don't always like being the one who has to pray at every single gathering, in all honesty. But I, I love being able to come alongside of you and to pray with you and to pray for you. But I can tell you that there are many times when I sit there ready to be still before God, and I do it for at least five or six seconds, and I'm like, all right, I think that was good. What can we, uh... And what happens is I end up feeling guilty. And so before you know it, actually it ends up becoming a prayer of confession, which I kind of like because then I have something to actually pray for rather than just sitting there and being still in the presence of God. And the reality, of course, as most of us know, is that boredom is a cultural sin. We do everything we can to not be bored. Right? We have headphones on so that we always have something going on if we're kind of doing something that might bore us. Right? There are video games that we can play. There's television that we can watch that helps to mask at times our boredom or our loneliness. There are so many other things that we can do that keep us from being bored. We have Pandora radio or satellite radio just in case a boring song comes along. You don't have to finish it out. You can just hit the FF button and you've moved on. We have smartphones. Everybody loves the smartphone because that way if you get stuck in a line or if you have to listen to a really long talk like a sermon, you can pull out the smartphone and all of a sudden you're not bored. Yes, I see it when you have a smartphone. This is not smooth, okay? <laughs> and so we do whatever we can in order to distract ourselves because we think it is a sin for us to be bored. But then several years ago now, I read an article, and then subsequently I read other articles that have kind of opened up my mind and my eyes to this. That boredom is actually remarkably important. Boredom is critical for being able to cultivate creativity and imagination. Research has shown how critical it is, especially for children. Now, I could go off on this for a little while, but I won't because I don't want to make parents upset with me. But I do want us to remember at least, I mean, some of the research that shows that A, kids who have watched television versus B, and our kids watch TV, so before you start thinking, and B, kids who don't, about how much more uh, imaginative and creative kids are who don't watch very much television. But even with adults, you see it both in research and anecdotally, people for whom they have come up with creative and, and imaginative things when they haven't been lost in their phones, when they haven't been lost on a video game, when they haven't been lost in the television, when everything else is not provided providing for them, their creativity and imagination, the new things that begin to bubble up, almost like a new vision that comes up whenever you allow yourself to be bored. Now, I'm not suggesting to you, I don't know, that Peter was bored when he sat up there on the roof. I do know that he has fallen asleep before when he was praying. And I'm not here to tell you that beyond the shadow of a doubt, it was only his boredom that he was bored and that that's why he came up with this vision. But I am here to tell you, what if God created us in such a way that when we are silent 
And when we are willing to be still before God, despite the boredom that may or may not come, what might happen? How might God give us some kind of new vision or dream that comes out of our willingness to simply be still? I told you all uh, several weeks ago now about our lovely trip at Christmas time to Colorado as we drove across and as our children were sick and the bowls that we had. You probably remember all of that. It was great. And, and, and how even my own wife, Megan, got sick. And so it was on the way there, it was horrible. And so we were there. We'd been there a few days and I had not gotten sick. So my sister texted me Wednesday morning and she said, have you gotten sick? And I said, no. Superior genes. So, Wednesday night, I get sick. Of course. Right? God is smiling at me. Uh, Megan is laughing at me. And so, yeah, so I get sick. And so Thursday then, I'm stuck at home while everyone else gets to go to Denver and have a good time. And I'm at home in the basement. I was very bored. I couldn't watch television. I didn't feel like watching TV even. And so I just kind of laid there. And there have been a couple things when it comes to ZPC, I won't go into it now, that I've been kind of wrestling with. And wouldn't you know it, as I sat there in the midst of that boredom, as I sat there with nothing else to do, all of a sudden, this new thought popped into my head. And I thought, whoa, where has that been? Well, probably underneath my busyness and my fears and my boredom. And all of a sudden, because I was forced for a few hours to be still and to do nothing but lay there, all of a sudden, something new came up. All of a sudden, something, it seems to me, from the Spirit, all of a sudden revealed itself. And it made me wonder, what if, what if rather than feeling guilty or fleeing from boredom, or whether, what if rather than simply always doing something, what if we took just 10 minutes a day? not asking for a whole weekend or for five hours. What if you just took 10 minutes and you just stopped? Now, silence is awkward. If I stand up here and I'm silent, even just for five seconds, it gets uncomfortable. But you hear things that you wouldn't otherwise have heard. It was perfect timing at the 9 o'clock. As soon as I was quiet for this five seconds, a phone went off. <laughs> Actually, I think they were just turning it off so that I would know that they'd been on it the whole time. It is uncomfortable. I get it. Now, there are some people for whom they love it. They love silence, and that's great. But I'm here to say, I want you to know that if you don't love it, if you find it incredibly difficult, and even if you find it boring at times, to stay with it just for 10 minutes a day, to stay being still. If your mind wanders, let it wander. But to be still, as the 46th Psalm says, to be still and know that I am God. Who knows how the Spirit of God may come alive in your life or what the Spirit may show those of us who are willing to simply be still.
You may not get some vision of a big sheet that comes down with reptiles and animals. But maybe there's some little thought that comes to your mind. And perhaps it's a thought that you might be willing to follow. Even if you don't know where it's going to go. And even if you don't want to go there. To be still. To build the boat slowly. And to ask what the Spirit of God might do. For those of us who are willing to be still and to know that He is God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are a people who desire for Your Spirit to speak through us, to renew us, to speak into the community that surrounds us and into the world. We are also a people, Lord, who want to do things ourselves. And for whom being still is sometimes remarkably difficult. And so I pray, God, that you would give us the strength. Give us the strength, God, to be still in your presence. To slow down, even if but for just a moment. That we might listen and hear what new thing you would have for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.